From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Every year, strokes cause death or disability among hundreds of thousands of people in this country. Would you know how to recognize the signs of a stroke and what to do if you saw them? We'll talk about that and a new development in stroke treatment. A device that we can put directly into the artery, advancing this tiny device all the way up into the brain arteries, we can extract the clot from the brain artery by this little device. May is American Stroke Awareness Month, and we'll hear from Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Robert Brown about stroke diagnosis and treatments. Also on the program, proton beam therapy can treat some cancers with less damage to healthy tissue than traditional radiation. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, it may begin with a sudden numbness in your face or your arm or your leg. And you may also have blurred vision, a bad headache or trouble walking or talking. Those are the signs and symptoms of stroke. And they can lead to serious disability, even death, especially if you don't get treatment relatively soon after the stroke happened. According to the CDC, 130,000 people die of stroke each year in this country, making it the fifth leading cause of death. More than 795,000 people in the U.S. have a stroke each year. Well, May is American Stroke Awareness Month. And here to talk about strokes, how they're diagnosed, how they're treated, and who's at risk is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Robert Brown. Welcome to the program, Dr. Brown. Always good to see you. Good day. Great to be here with you. And nobody better to talk about this topic. And strokes have not gone away since the last time you were here. They haven't gone away. It continues to be a very prominent problem, both in terms of a key contributor to death as well as severe disability. What are the different types of stroke that people can have? And is there a main type that people usually have? Well, there are two main types of stroke. One is an ischemic stroke in which there's a lack of blood supply to the brain. It's about 85% of strokes. Now, some have have referred to that as a heart attack of the brain. Is is that a good analogy? Yeah, in a way it is. Uh, A heart attack implies that there's a lack of blood flow to the heart muscle, and so myocardial infarction that is. So in a similar type of way, a cerebral infarction is a lack of blood flow to the brain. But importantly, there is the other type of stroke as well. And about 15% of strokes are hemorrhagic strokes or bleeding into the brain tissue. Is one worse than the other? Both types of stroke, both hemorrhagic stroke, which is a bleeding stroke and cerebral infarction, can have devastating outcomes. And so we tend to take any stroke very, very seriously because it implies that part of the brain tissue is no longer working. And a TIA, transient ischemic attack, mm-hmm. uh, something that comes and goes, but it's kind of a, a, a mini stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that fit in the picture? Yeah. Well, the symptoms that occur at the time of stroke, which we'll talk about in a moment, it can occur and then resolve within several minutes or hours. And that's a transient ischemic attack. But very importantly, even though they are transient, those symptoms should not be ignored because a TIA is a very important predictor 
of the future risk of stroke, even in the days following a TIA. How, how does that happen, that if you have an interruption of the blood flow or you have a bleed and you develop symptoms and then they go away? How can they go away? Well, a TIA is an ischemic process. So in other words, it's part of the lack of blood supply type of an issue. And what can happen is a clot can form in an artery, but the body tries to break down that clot. And there is a mechanism within the bloodstream to break down that little clot that might be there. So in other words, a clot might form, but it might break down over several minutes or hours the blood starts to flow again, and the symptoms resolve. How come that never happens in the heart? It, it sometimes does, and that's does. why there's the concept of angina, which is just some uh, uh, chest discomfort that might come on with exertion. But that doesn't mean that they're having a heart attack. It just means that there's this temporary lack of blood flow to the heart muscle. Oh, and so that's what it is in the brain, temporary lack of blood flow. It's not actually exactly. a, a, a clot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, well... It is, it is a clot typically that is formed, but it, for some reason there's been a lack of blood flow to the brain tissue that then improves over several minutes to hours. And again, many different ways in which that can occur. And it's a warning sign. Very important warning sign. Well, that might be, but where I grew up in the Midwest here, a TIA is not a precursor to a stroke. A TIA is a spell and nothing to be concerned about. And I had... <laughs> I can, many relatives who would, well, they just had a spell. But now we know that actually is something that's pretty important. Well, both for symptoms of stroke that occur and then resolve and symptoms of stroke that occur and persist, one of the key messages to our listeners is to never ignore those symptoms. Now that we have treatments available for acute stroke when it occurs and we have ways of reducing the risk of stroke if a TIA occurs, there are many reasons why we want to have people who have had stroke-like symptoms contact their provider immediately or seek emergency care. So this is a diagnosis that's made by history alone. I mean, there's no way, no test to determine that the patient, in fact, had a TIA. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to to TIA, you're exactly right, Tom. The history is extremely important. And maybe we can talk for a moment about stroke and TIA symptoms. Yeah, we should because, like I said, my relatives would just say it's a spell. And the last thing someone wants to do is go into your doctor and say, I was having these symptoms, not having them anymore. You know, what kind of door is that opening? Nobody wants to do that. So why is it important to admit to yourself or to say, I think that this is what has just happened to me? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the key reason is, again, if we see somebody who's had a TIA, there are tests that can be done to determine where did that clot come from, and then we can implement appropriate medicines or sometimes surgery or sometimes balloon therapies to the arteries to reduce their risk of stroke in the days and weeks ahead. So you can do a a diagnostic test that shows you uh, which artery might be partially blocked that caused the TIA and balloon that and solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right, Tom. And there are many potential causes of TIA and ischemic stroke, including sometimes a little clot will form in the heart, It'll break free and go up to a brain artery and block the blood flow for some period of time. Or sometimes there will be a narrowing in a neck 
artery that we can treat, or maybe there's an abnormality within the bloodstream that their blood is clotting more than it should. So the point is we have some surgery options available. You can treat narrowings in the neck arteries with balloon therapy to open up that uh, narrowing, and we sometimes use specific types of blood thinners as well. And in addition... Importantly, there are risk factors that we can treat as well. One thing we want to talk about, and we'll do more so after the break, but I want you to run through the symptoms and signs of a stroke but they're, because they're so important. And if everybody could potentially recognize those, I think we could save a lot of lives and disability. Run through those real quickly for us. Well, the important symptoms to consider include sudden onset of weakness, face, arm, or leg, sudden numbness, meaning difficulty feeling, face, arm, or leg, sudden difficulty speaking, sudden difficulty understanding others, sudden difficulty seeing sudden difficulty walking, or a sudden, unexpected, severe headache unlike anything you've ever had before. Symptoms and signs you ought to remember. We're talking about stroke treatment and prevention with Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Robert Brown. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, myth or matter of fact, women more often die of strokes than men do. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The 12 Habits of Highly Healthy People are activities you can incorporate into your daily life to help achieve a healthier, happier you. Developed by the staff of Mayo Clinic's Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center, the 12 Habits include a spectrum of activities that contribute to physical, nutritional, mental, and spiritual health. Here to talk about habit number one, physical activity, is Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Specialist Dr. Ed Laskowski. You know, we're made to move, and uh, physical activity is key. If there were a pill out there that could provide all the benefits of movement and activity, it would be the number one selling pill ever in the world. The benefits to our overall uh, physical health, our mental health, our emotional health are just myriad. Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Specialist Dr. Ed Laskowski talking about physical activity. Physical activity is habit number one in the 12 habits of highly healthy people. We'll be featuring more habits in upcoming programs here on Mayo Clinic Radio. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. May is American Stroke Awareness Month, and we're talking about stroke with Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Robert Brown. And so, Dr. Brown, myth or matter of fact, women more often die of stroke than do men. Well, that's actually true. Wow. And the reason for that, in part, is the incidence of stroke slightly higher in women. Women tend to live to be an older age. Mm-hmm. Stroke is a disorder of, to a certain extent of older age, although it can affect people of any age, and so that is actually true. All right, before we talk about uh, some of the newer treatments and some of the things that you can do, uh, pretty amazing, uh, let's talk about the risk factors. Who ought to be concerned about the possibility of having a stroke? Mm-hmm. Well, there are these several factors that increase the risk of stroke, and these are also factors that we can address and impact upon to lower the risk of stroke. And the key risk factors include high blood pressure, Cigarette smoking, high cholesterol, and diabetes are the most important four risk factors. Now, there are others as well. Uh, sedentary lifestyle, meaning people just don't get any activity or exercise at all, that's a risk factor. Obesity is a risk factor. Certain sleep disorders and heavy alcohol use. What about stress? Does it play a role? Great, great question. There are data that suggests that stress does play a role in increasing the risk of stroke, but it may be its relationship to high blood pressure as well. 
Birth control pills I want to ask you about and uh, family history of migraines. Mm-hmm. You know, oral contraceptives overall only increase the risk of stroke very, very slightly. Oh, and that's so good. And, it's and an particularly, um, it's helped that they've lowered the dose of the hormones in yeah, BCPs, estro- right? Yeah, the estrogen being at a lower dose is favorable, but I do want to stress that the risk associated with oral contraceptive pills is extremely low. Migraine headaches. Mm-hmm. Is there a relationship there? There's a slightly higher risk of stroke in people who have migraines, and the combination of cigarette smoking and migraine is a particularly concerning combination. So if you have migraine, grain headaches, you shouldn't smoke for sure. Absolutely. And it slightly increases your risk for a stroke. It does. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about treatment. And one of the things that I have learned over the years talking with you is how important it is to get that patient some help as quickly as possible. And of course, that makes sense for any medical emergency. But why is it particularly so for stroke? That's a great question. Well, when it comes to the brain tissue, every minute counts when the blood flow is not going to the the brain cells. That oxygen-carrying blood is uh, absolute necessity for those brain cells to survive. And for every minute that goes by, we lose those brain cells. And so the faster a person can seek treatment and we can get the blood flowing again, sometimes using clot-dissolving medicines or clot busters, the better off that that patient might be. And as a side, one of the coolest things I've ever heard is the telestroke robots, basically, that are helping people in far-flung places across the country. You know, if you're way out in the middle of a ranch in Montana, Mm -hmm. you might not have someone, a neurologist right next door, who can help you. Mm -hmm. How does that robot work? Great question. Across all of our Mayo sites, we do have the ability to interact with patients at hospitals that are connected in our telestroke program. And so via an audio and video connection with the small town emergency department, we can interact with the patient. We can review the CAT scan, which is a a fancy picture of the brain tissue, and we can help that provider decide if a clot buster or some other treatment would be best for them and then transfer them quickly to a larger hospital. That could even happen in deepest, darkest South Dakota where you grew up, (laughs) where they thought it was just a spell, or Iowa where I grew up. Both (laughs) great places, by the way. Let's talk about some other exciting things uh, in the world of treatment for stroke. What what was the big news earlier this year? Well, the big news was in follow-up to um, recent information over the last 20 years or so that suggested that clot busters delivered into the vein may be affected, uh, effective in stroke uh, for patients that are seen within three or up to 4.5 hours after onset. What the new issue is a device that we can put directly into the artery. So in other words, advancing this little tiny device via a plastic tube called a catheter all the way up into the brain arteries we can extract or remove the clot from the brain artery by this little device. A neuroradiology or neurosurgery colleague can advance this device all the way up into the brain artery, and the recent data suggested that, in fact, this is quite effective in reducing the risk of disability following ischemic stroke. So just like in the heart, same kind of procedure. Sometimes in the heart they put a stent in to keep Mm -hmm. the artery open. Do you ever do that in the brain? Great question. Uh, We do that sometimes for the neck artery angioplasty, which is balloon therapy with stent placement. Uh, Overall, we do that much less commonly in the brain because it ends up that medical therapy is probably better than stent therapy for narrowing in the brain arteries. 
but acutely, meaning within the first several hours after onset of stroke symptoms, either intravenous clot busters or this new intraarterial therapy may well be quite effective in reducing the disability from stroke. It kind of sounds like snaking something up through those veins into your brain. Exactly, you got it. It kind (laughs) of sounds a little bit frightening to me. Mm -hmm. I might apt to go with the clot busting drug first. Why why would this be better? Yeah, well, actually we do both, Tracy. It's an interesting question. The intravenous therapy is administered and then the patient, if they're not at a major medical center, is emergently transferred, either via ground or helicopter transfer. The reason to go that next step is that the intravenous clot buster is okay, but it's far, far from perfect in terms of dissolving that clot. And that next step, going directly into the artery and extracting the clot, can lead to resumption of the blood flow in a much higher percentage of people. And how can you figure out where that clot is to snake to the correct vein? Yeah, yeah. Is that in the correct CT? artery. The correct that, artery? That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that through a CT scan? Uh, great question. A CT scan is done first to make sure that the patient has the appropriate type of stroke that okay. would allow us to do this. And then we do what's called an angiogram. Okay. An angiogram is a study in which dye is injected into the arteries and shows the roadmap of the brain arteries. And then based on where we see the problem in that roadmap, the catheter can be advanced up to the blockage, pull out the little clot that's there, in other words, attach itself to the clot, pull out the clot, and then see the blood flow resume. But the important point here is that that has to be done within a few hours of the onset of symptoms. And did you say you had up to four and a half hours, maybe? The brain cells would still be viable, stay alive that long Mm -hmm. without blood flow? Well, for the intravenous clot buster therapies, uh, depending on the person's age and, and some other issues, we can use that up to four and a half hours after onset. The intraarterial therapy, we can even use a little bit longer, up to even six hours. But a key point is the faster that we can get the blood flow restarted, much higher likelihood the patient will have a good outcome. So every minute truly does count. Speaking of fast, we're fast running out of time. We only have about 40 seconds left. But what is fast? How does that pertain to stroke? Mm-hmm. Maybe easier for patients to remember the signs and symptoms with that acronym. Yeah. Well, the the FAST acronym is F is face. And so smiling, showing somebody your teeth. And if there's facial droop on one side, that could be a stroke. A is for arm, holding the arms up. And if one droops, that could apply arm arm a weakness. S for speech. If there's speech slurring, here again, that's a concern. And T, time. Every minute truly does count. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for bringing us up to date on American Stroke Awareness Month. Thank you. Dr. Robert Brown, Jr. is a neurologist at Mayo Clinic. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, proton beam therapy, a cancer treatment that's less harmful to healthy tissues than traditional radiation therapy, and Sunscreen 101, the SPF basics for protection while you're having fun in the sun. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network Headlines. 
the number of breast cancer cases is projected to increase by 50% in the U.S. by the year 2030. That's according to the National Cancer Institute. Why? Well, one reason, the baby boomer population is aging and a woman's risk of getting breast cancer increases with age. Researchers say the good news is that as experts learn more about breast cancer, they will find new ways to screen and treat it. And now, let's talk about vitamin D. It boosts bone health and it may help prevent diabetes, some cancers, heart disease, and other conditions. Past studies show lots of people have low levels of vitamin D, which has led to an increase in the use of supplements. And some may worry about the effects of taking too much. Mayo Clinic Dr. Thomas Thatcher and his team looked at this issue. Acute toxicity from vitamin D supplementation is very rare and it is fairly safe to take in the short term. However, there is not enough information about the long-term effects. Dr. Thatcher says they need to figure out the effects of long-term high levels, but low levels are definitely not good. So, supplements are key if you need them. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headlines. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Radiation, most often some form of x-rays, has long been used to treat a number of different cancers. The radiation is directed at an area where the cancer is from outside the body, and it's called external beam or from the outside radiation. And it's often successful in destroying the cancer, but the problem is it can also destroy healthy tissue on its way to the cancer deep within the body. Yeah, it's can be quite damaging and painful, too. A new type of radiation therapy called proton therapy allows doctors to more finely focus radiation on cancerous tissue deep within the body without damaging tissue on its way in. Now, here to talk about this proton therapy, also called proton beam therapy, is Dr. Robert Foote. Dr. Foote is a radiation oncologist and chair of the radiation oncology department at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Foote. Thank you. It's good to be here. Dr. Foote, welcome. So it's got to be a pretty exciting time for you. We are very excited. We've been waiting for this day for many years. I look forward to being able to offer this treatment to our cancer patients. So we have a new proton beam therapy center, not just in Rochester, but also Scottsdale, right? That's right. It's actually located in Phoenix, uh, next to the clinic and hospital there, the Mayo Clinic facilities, and it's a mirror image of the one here in Rochester. It's identical. Why did you decide to build one? I mean, these uh, proton facilities have been around for years. Mayo has never had one. Why now? We've been waiting for the technology to mature uh, to the level where it adds more of a benefit to our patients receiving uh, cancer care. There's a new form of proton beam therapy called pencil beam scanning, which is even more accurate, more precise, uh, more safe than what's currently available for proton beam therapy. So you were waiting for the technology to get good enough. To get good enough, that's right. (laughs) How many centers are there around the country? Uh, There's about 14 proton beam centers in the United States at this time. Wasn't there one in Indiana recently that closed, and why was that? The Indiana facility was old. Uh, The equipment there was built in the 70s and not by a vendor, so they had to have an entire crew there keeping the equipment going. Uh, So upkeep, uh, overhead was very expensive. Very expensive. It was located in a very small city, 
uh, away from other medical facilities, so all they had was proton beam therapy and none of the other important things that go along with cancer treatment like surgery and chemotherapy mm-hmm. and pathology and diagnostic imaging. It was a standalone facility. Radiation is what has been used, like what you just said, surgery or chemotherapy. Um, but proton beam therapy is not for every person who has cancer and would benefit from radiation. Who are the, who are the, uh, what are the cancers that proton beam therapy is great for? Well, we believe and the evidence shows that it's best in uh, younger patients. Uh, especially children, their organs and bodies are still growing and developing, and so they're more susceptible to the harmful effects of radiation. So the younger the person is, the more benefit there'll be to the radiation, to the proton beam uh, treatment. Certainly any type of cancer that's curable with radiation uh, will be a top priority for us. And then the location of the tumor within the body, if it's adjacent to some critical normal organ that's very sensitive to the effects of radiation, then using the proton beam will be more beneficial. Uh, tumors in the eye or in the brain, next to the spinal cord, uh, in the lung or the liver, uh, those types of tumors in young patients, uh, they'll benefit the most. What kind of childhood cancers do you see most commonly and might be candidates for this surgery? What kinds of cancer? Uh, certainly childhood brain tumors uh, will be, proton beam therapy has been shown to be very beneficial for them. Um, Rhabdomyosarcomas, soft tissue sarcomas. Don't uh, most of those occur in the abdomen? And they do, and so the proton beam therapy has a safer effect on kidneys and spinal cord and intestines. One of the things we worry about most in young children is a very late effect of radiation. Uh, radiation can cause cancers, induce cancers, and uh, the larger volume of normal organs exposed to radiation, the higher the risk. And a number of studies have shown that using proton beam therapy, there's a lower risk of getting a radiation-induced malignancy when using protons. Just so no one in our audience is alarmed who may have had radiation, the incidence of radiation actually causing the cancer or being related to the development of a cancer later on is pretty small. It is small, especially in adults. Um, It's uh, the, the odds of uh, dying from a radiation-induced cancer about the same as uh, being killed in an automobile accident mm-hmm. if you drive a car for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it's relatively so, small odds. Of concern to you because uh, you great had... great concern uh, to me, yes. Tracy had uh, I had lymphoma when I was 19, treated with radiation. Yeah. And so it is very it is very painful. That's why I said radiation is not a walk in the park. You have painful? It was very painful, yeah. Really? Yeah, the, the cumulative effects of the radiation. We can talk about that some other show. But, <laughs> uh, but what are some, so I can say there are lots of risks that do go along with radiation treatment. What are, are the risks of proton therapy? Well, the, the risk of proton therapy are the same as conventional radiation treatments. Uh, but because we're treating, we're exposing a smaller volume of normal tissues and organs to radiation and to a lower dose, then the severity of the side effects is less, and uh, the risk of the side effect developing is lower, too. That sounds like a great idea. How about I'm all in favor of that. <laughs> How about cost? And uh, do most insurance companies uh, cover this type of treatment? Uh, that's been probably the biggest controversy for proton beam therapy is what uh, centers are charging for it. Uh, some centers are charging two to three times what they would charge for normal radiation treatments for the proton beam because equipment is more expensive mm-hmm. to purchase. Uh, 
Um, we are fortunate um, since Mayo is a non-for-profit uh, institution, and uh, we have grateful patients that uh, like to donate uh, mm-hmm. to the Mayo Clinic for causes like this that will be able to offer proton beam therapy the same charge or same cost we do for regular radiation treatment. So, so when we deal with insurance companies, we take cost off the table. It won't cost them more to cover this type of uh, treatment. Would it be possible for you to explain how proton beam therapy works to two radio hosts? <laughs> can you can you make it simple enough for us to understand how it works? Uh, I'll explain what we've uh, what we have observed. Um, the higher the energy that a proton has, uh, the deeper it penetrates into the body, and the lower the energy, the more superficial it is. So we can look at an image to of a patient, a CT and MRI, and see where the tumor is and decide what energy we need to give the proton to get into the tumor target. What we've observed is as the protons enter water or as they enter the human body, uh, at the very high energies, there's very little radiation going on. Hmm. Uh, Only the last uh, two or three millimeters of their path do they release their energy, and then they release it all. So there's very little entrance dose as they're entering the body. Um, as they get to the cancer target, uh, the last two or three millimeters, they slow down. They release all their energy right there in the target to destroy the cancer cells. And then there's no exit dose. So very low entrance dose, no exit dose. All the energy is released right in the cancer target. Well, pretty amazing. I think we understood that, but I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than this. <laughs> How much did the facility cost? Around $360 million for both facilities, so $180 million for, for each facility. Oh, the one in Phoenix and, and Rochester. Right. Oh, wow. It's a beautiful facility. I know that. Thanks, Dr. Foote. Thank you. Dr. Foote is a radiation oncologist at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Sunscreen 101, just in time for safe fun in the sun. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, it won't be long, and we'll be headed to the beach or the lake to enjoy some time relaxing in the sun. And don't forget, along with the iPod, the beverage cooler, and your favorite book, what do you want to take with you? You have to take some sunscreen. All right. But the next question is, what kind of sunscreen and what SPF should you take? And here to give us those sunscreen basics, uh, Sunscreen 101 is Mayo Clinic Dermatologist, Dr. Don Davis. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Davis. Thanks, Tracy and Tom. It's my pleasure to be here. Dr. Davis, the sunscreen queen. (laughs) All right. Well, there are worse titles I can have. That's true. That is true. All right. The first thing that we need to know is UVA or UVB, I know that there's one that is more important than the other, or are they equally important? They're equally important for different reasons. So UVA is the long wavelength of light that penetrates to the deeper layers of skin, and that propagates damage over time. UVB is this shorter wavelength of light that penetrates the surface of the skin and is more um, in charge of sunburns. So what I like to think of is UVB does the acute damage, 
like the sunburn that you would get if you went out without a sunscreen. UVA is also present at the same time, but propagates the, the damage. That's the delayed redness and sun damage you get over time. This so is, one's like a short-term investment and one's a long-term <laughs> investment. This is the cloudy day discussion, people. How Correct. do I get a sunburn on a cloudy day? You do have to wear sunscreen even when it's cloudy. You have to wear sunscreen when it's cloudy because the UV light still penetrates through the clouds and it reflects off of snow and concrete and water, which makes it even stronger when it reflects off of those surfaces. So you can't sit by the pool in without your sunscreen on or go snow skiing without your sunscreen on. You're going to get burned and even stronger because of the reflection off of those surfaces. So when you say broad spectrum, uh, that would mean that the sunscreen protects against both UVA and UVB? Correct. Broad spectrum is the buzzword that's been approved by the FDA if if a sunscreen does indeed block both of those in tests. So you can't look for any other term unless it physically spells it out, blocks both UVA and UVB. But because that's a long explanation, most people prefer on the bottles to just say broad spectrum. I would suspect from the conversations that I've had with you and the other times that you've been on that at the beginning of this, when Dr. Shives was painting the picture of going to the beach or going to the lake, and that's when you need to have your sunscreen you might want to add going to the grocery store, going to work, or heading out every day. Correct. Dermatologists put sunscreen on their skin daily, including myself, and it's just a really important habit because ultraviolet light is everywhere. You don't live in the dark. It passes through window glass. It passes through car glass, house glass. It comes off incandescent fluorescent light bulbs that are in your home and in businesses and institutions. So you're exposed to ultraviolet light all of the time. So really, it's a matter of my baseline sunscreen is an SPF. 15 or 30. I wear that every day. And then when I'm going to go outside, especially if I'm going to be near a reflective surface like water or snow, I will wear SPF 50 to bump it up a notch. So everybody needs to have a baseline and then a bump up. What about lotion versus spray? Lotion is more predictable because you can see where it goes and you can feel how it's settling onto you. Spray if you put it on properly, has the same efficacy or strength and uh, p power of the lotion, but it's just very hard to put it on evenly. And what I'd like to remind people is that a shot glass full of sunscreen only covers your face, your neck, and the backs of your hands. So that's a lot of cream to put on. And the average person in studies, when told, please put this sunscreen on in a method you think is appropriate for your skin, only put on 30% of what they should. So if you have an SPF of 15 and you're only putting on 30% of that, you're actually only covering yourself to an SPF of about 5. You know, I actually did a little, orthopedic surgeons do read once in a while. Is and I was reading true? a little bit about Like your SPF. annual yeah. reading day? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> One day a year. Uh, but I I saw this statement, and I thought it was pretty good, and it said SPF is not a consumer-friendly number. And the argument that they were making is that there's not that much difference between an SPF of 15 and an SPF of 50 in terms of how much it blocks. And is that true? And why don't you wear SPF 50 every day? The SPF factor means sun protective factor, which is the amount of time it takes somebody to get minimal redness, regardless of your skin tone, out in the sun with the sunscreen on rather than with the sunscreen off. So, for example, if I were very fair and standing at the equator and I was there for one minute and turned red, if I then put sunscreen on that same body part and walked outside and it took 15 minutes to turn red, that would be an SPF of 15. And so it's based on that physics. So it's not a line that goes directly up. 
it's more like an asymptote curve that eventually levels out, which is why SPF of 50 is not three times stronger than SPF of 15 because it's a sloped curve, not a straight line. Asymptote. Did you get that? <laughs> I'll hang with you guys. Did you know that? I, I have to ask because I, I was telling you I was on vacation. I was so every day I thought Dr. Davis would be proud of me. I'm putting my SPF 50 on. We're going to the beach. I did not get a sunburn. It was great. And then I come home and run into somebody who says, oh, yeah, we were on our break and we only use coconut oil because it's a natural SPF of 15. And I thought, I know who to ask that question of. So things that are oil-based have some SPF, like for ex- because it's a physical barrier that the sunlight has to penetrate through. So, for example, before sunscreens were put into lip balm, women had a much lower incidence of lip skin cancer than men. Mm. And that's because women wear more lip gloss and lipstick than men. On average, mm-hmm. I can't speak for Tom, <laughs> and that because of this physical barrier of having to get through one more layer of stuff to get to your lip skin, women had less skin cancer, but it still wasn't a very legitimate amount of sun protective factor, and now they can compound sunscreens into lip balm. So some of that coconut oil was providing some protection But it's the oil, sure, and it's very minimal. <laughs> and with regards to uh, photo protection, I always like to remind people you need to reapply every two hours plus when you get wet or sweaty, which is very frequent. And the my other favorite sunscreen is SPF clothes, which are called UPF or Universal Protective Factor. Those usually rank in uh, strength between 15 and 50, so the same as sunscreens. There's way more of 50 UPF clothes than there are 15, simply because the clothing companies are able to put the fiber weave into the clothes just as easily. And they, the sunscreen protective factor or UPF, Universal Protective Factor, last as long as you don't destroy the clothes with any sort of chemical additives like bleach. So it's a cheap, easy, alternative way to protect yourself as if you had sunscreen on without having to worry, did I put enough on? You know, do I have to reapply? Do I have to make it cover things? And so if you don't like putting on sunscreen or you're worried that you don't want to have to reapply it, you can simply invest in a couple of nice pieces of UPF clothes and save yourself the difference. You said reapply every two hours. So if it says on the bottle waterproof, don't believe it. So waterproof is a term that's no longer allowed by the FDA. You're now allowed to say water resistant because nothing is technically waterproof. And in addition to UPF clothes, I always like to tell people, Remember that a hat that is tightly weaved is equivalent to SPF 15. So if you've got 15 on your face or 30 on your face and you add another 15, that always helps. And sunglasses, because you can't really put sunscreen on your eyelid skin because we don't want it to get in your eyes because then you can have problems. Um, And because Tom's uh, sunscreen is so old and says waterproof on it, we know that it's probably no longer any good. Does sunscreen expire? The the stuff I had last summer that was left over, is that still any good? Yes, it is true. It is not a marketing ploy that sunscreen does legitimately expire. So sunscreen is very temperature sensitive, both to cool temperatures and to hot temperatures. So you can boil the sunscreen, so to speak, and inactivate the chemicals by heating it too much if you leave it in your car when it's really hot in the summer. Or you can freeze it if you've left it in your trunk or in the car on a Minnesota winter and that (laughs) sunscreen then is deactivated. So you really need to keep it at room temperature and you do need to obey the expiration dates. But as I tell my patients, there is no excuse to have an expired sunscreen bottle because it should be put to use. All right, slop it on, do it every two hours. Let me borrow your lip gloss. <laughs> you, we go. you look good in pink. And don't forget sunscreen clothing and hats and sunglasses. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dr. Davis. My pleasure. That's our program for this week. 
For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social Social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.